have your Bibles, turn to the book of Job, chapter 8. Over the last several years, as I would periodically fill in for Pastor Michael as as he's gone, I've been uh, preaching from the book of Job. It's not the easiest book to read. It's not the easiest book to preach from. Uh, We find ourselves today in in chapter 8. It's helpful to distinguish, when you're reading through the book of Job, two situations. One situation is described for us in chapters 1 and 2. That's the heavenly perspective where we find out that Job is not suffering because of any wrongdoing that he's committed. And we, that's very clear in chapters 1 and 2. And so he's not suffering because of his sin. When you get to chapter 3 and following, you leave the heavenly perspective, and that's a perspective that Job and his friends are not aware of. They were not in on the discussions between uh, God and Satan. And so you get to chapter 3 and following, and it's a human wrestling with Job's intense suffering. And that's the second situation, and in that situation, Job will say some things that he will need to repent of. So he's not suffering because of any sin that he's committed, but once he begins to talk to the friends, and the friends are not always a help in this, and he begins to wrestle with his situation, he does call into question God's justice in certain of his speeches. Now today we're in chapter 8 with Bildad, uh, and so we've had uh, Job's uh, initial curse lament in chapter 3. We've had Eliphaz respond to Job kind of cautiously. But the friends are going to try to get Job to maybe understand that uh, there's something more going on here in his suffering. That maybe he has committed sin. And as you go through the debate, it gets more heated. Uh, but we're early on here in chapter 8. So chapter 8 is Bildad's response to Job, uh, Job chapter 8, let's give our attention to the reading of the Word of God. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? He's responding to Job. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. 
He is a lush plant before the sun, and his roots, his shoots spread out over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy, or some think it's the end, of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. It is what you have revealed to us as your people. It is sufficient for all of our needs. And we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. Speak to your people that they may hear your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard of something that sounded really good? So good that maybe it was too good to be true. And it turns out, yes, it was too good to be true. And all your hopes, as small as they might have been, are dashed. And for some things, that's not a major problem. A particular product might promise you something, and, and maybe that product doesn't quite work. You know, the creams that are going to give you really, really good-looking skin or take away those wrinkles. Okay, maybe those don't always work. But you haven't really spent much money on that. And at the end of the day, it's no big deal. But what if you spent thousands of money on a product or invested all kinds of time on something that you hoped would produce and it doesn't? You find out that the promises are false. It doesn't meet your expectations. And then it's more serious because you've spent time and effort and emotional exertion and you are left with this feeling of betrayal, this sick feeling. And it's even more serious when this happens with reference to counsel or advice on the spiritual level. Something can sound so true, so good, so orthodox, and turn out to be wrong and hurtful and maybe even dangerous. Bad spiritual counsel can lead to devastating spiritual consequences. And this is what we see in Bildad's counsel to Job. We've seen how Eliphaz and how Bildad have stated principles, especially Eliphaz, that are generally true. They reflect biblical counsel, but it doesn't really apply to Job. They've not done a good job of applying the general truths that they've been teaching to Job's situation. They've tried to argue cautiously at first that maybe Job is suffering because of some sin that he has committed. We know from chapters 1 and 2 that's not the case. Job is not sinning because of some sin that he has committed. But the friends are so focused on the fact, this teaching that they believe, 
that suffering leads back to sin, it's what they keep coming back to over and over. And so many things they say sounds like the truth. The counsel that they give, which ends up being bad counsel, sounds so good. And so we must be sure as God's people because bad counsel many times does sound like the truth. Falsehood many times does sound like the truth. We must be committed to the truth of God's word. So how does bad counsel sound like the truth? Several things are apparent in this chapter. The first thing we want to highlight is bad counsel sounds like the truth in that it appeals to a source of authority. You see that in verses 8 through 10. Bildad tries to justify his counsel to Job by appealing to the authority of ancient teaching from the past. Verse 8, inquire, please, Job, of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. We are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they, the fathers, not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? The appeal here is to what the fathers have taught, handed down generation by generation, and that's what Bildad is trying to get across to Job. Teaching that has come from bygone ages. A tradition handed down generation after generation from the fathers of old. The authority of this teaching is bolstered by the fact that it's not recent. That's their perspective. The fact that this teaching has been handed down from generation to generation gives it stability, gives it authority. Now think about that for a minute. That's not the cultural understanding of today, is it? People today believe that if something is ancient, it's old and irrelevant and has nothing to say to the contemporary culture. The most recent, the newest, the best is what we must listen to because it's contemporary, it's relevant, it's hip, it's cool, or whatever. Now, both approaches can be problematic In general, we should not throw something out because it's old. There's a lot of wisdom from the past that we need to listen to. If you don't know history, as the saying goes, you'll just continue to repeat the mistakes of history. On the other hand, the newer is better is short-sighted. It's a bit arrogant and sometimes just simply ignorant. It's interesting what some students entering seminary believe. Uh, 10 or 15 years ago, this was a little bit different situation, but uh, seminary students coming into seminary are a product of their education. And now this is not across the board, obviously, but they've attended high schools and colleges, and many of them have been taught a revisionist history. And they actually believe, some of them, not all of them, obviously, that communism is not really all that bad. 
And some of them believe that more people died in the Iraq war than under Lenin and Stalin. It's amazing that they would believe that. They've been taught a revisionist history, that which is newer. And it's a problem. Just because something is new doesn't mean it's better. But on the other hand, just because something is handed down from generation to generation doesn't mean that it is always the truth either. Maybe you can think of some family traditions or even some religious traditions that at one point you have been a part of your life that you've thought, well, maybe that's not really the best. We know a family that goes to a um, very solid church, not here, um, have young kids, and uh, the grandmother died. The grandmother of these kids died. And whenever a butterfly comes across, the mother says, oh, there's Nana. She's here to see us. She's here to visit us. And you're thinking, ooh, that's just not good. Uh, Where did this come from? Uh, And maybe that's one of the family practices that should be changed. But the principle here is that bad counsel sometimes sounds like the truth because it appeals to authority. Today, people appeal to a variety of authorities to substantiate many times what they perceive to be the truth. They appeal to worldview science, Darwinian science. They appeal to the APA or anything else. But the problems with such authority, whether it's recent or whether it's old, is that a lot of it is human generated. It's not certain. We need an authority that comes from God. So Bildad here is trying to substantiate what he's saying by appealing to this source of authority. We also see in this passage that bad counsel sounds like the truth in its general teaching. Normally, falsehood is presented by people in ways that mirror the truth. That's what makes it so difficult sometimes to tell truth apart from error. But many times, the difference is huge. It's a big difference. It's an eternal difference. It can be the difference spiritually between the truth and falsehood. And the false view of the friends is deceptive because what they teach about the character of God many times is generally true and sounds generally true, but the implications that they draw from their teaching is false. Bildad is the defender of God's justice. He thinks Job has gone too far in what he said about God in chapter 7 where he basically accuses God of maybe harassing him. Job does (laughs) because of his situation. And Bildad, rightfully so, wants to support the justice of God. And so verse 3, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert the right? No, he does not. God is a God of justice. God rules the world in justice. This is very much a truthful statement until... You begin to realize Bildad's view of justice. And that's where the problem 
begins. We see Bildad's view of justice in verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Now, Job, if you go back to chapter 1, has lost his children. And so Bildad says to Job, you need to consider, Job, that if your children have sinned against him, that God has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. God is a God of justice. Job has lost his children. God has delivered Job's children into the hand of their transgression. In other words, it's because they've sinned against God. That's his view of justice. They're getting what they deserve. They're reaping the sin in their life. God's justice means that there's this connection between suffering and sin. And if you are suffering in some way, then you must have committed some sin. That's the narrow view of justice that Bildad and the friends are operating with. A relentless, mechanical, narrow understanding of the way God works in the world. It takes away the mystery of God's actions and the joy of worshiping such a God. Maybe you've seen at carnivals or other places, Chuck E. Cheese maybe, you got a mallet. And there's these holes here, right? And something pops up, and what do you do? Smack it, right? Something else pops up, and you smack it. Something else pops up, and you smack it. Okay? That's their view of God. Sin pops up, and he smacks it down. Sin pops up, and he smacks it down. Job! Sin has popped up in your children, and God has smacked it down. This view of God is more like the God of other religions, the God of a religion today that is causing much terror around the world. That's more like their view of God than the God of Scripture. This view is more like what people talk about karma. You know, some people believe that everything will even out and you'll get yours. Okay, we don't believe in karma, right? Because we believe in the sovereignty of God who works out his purposes in mysterious ways that we always can't understand. Because of Bildad's view of the justice of God and this mechanical view of the deed and consequence relationship, if you're suffering, then there must be sin. The only response that he can offer to Job is to repent. To repent, because he thinks that Job has committed some sin. He tells him that in verse 5, right after he says, your children have sinned and that's why they're no longer here. He says in verse 5, if you'll seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. 
Seek God, Job. Plead for his mercy. If you're pure and upright, he will restore you. Again, that sounds pretty good, right? Seek God. Plead for his mercy. If you are pure and upright, he will restore you. Because Job has continued to assert his innocence in reference to his suffering. But you see, what has happened here is that the character of Job and the works of Job have snuck in the back door because that's the main issue with the friends. Job, you are suffering. That goes back to your character. That goes back to your sin. You must have done something to bring on this suffering. And so Job's character and the works of Job begin to take center stage. Because of the way the friends are arguing. And Job is continually having to defend himself against the friends. Works easily sneak in the back door, don't they? Even in the church, works easily sneaks in the back door. And you have to distinguish justification where our works mean nothing because we trust in the works of Christ from sanctification where our works are significant, not the basis of our salvation, but they are significant as evidence that we are truly regenerated. Some of the newer approaches to Paul, if you're familiar with any of that discussion, new perspective on Paul, argues that works at the final judgment become a basis for our acceptance with God. See, this is very subtle. Works as a basis for our acceptance with God or works as evidence of our relationship with God. Those two things mean different things. Works as a basis for our salvation with God. That's wrong. Works as evidence of our salvation with God. That's right, but it's just one word difference between them. See how falsehood is easily confused with the truth. In the early church, as you know from Sunday school in the last several weeks, as Pastor Michael has been going through uh, some of the debates in the early church, there were debates about Christ's relationship with the Father. One Greek vowel meant all the difference in the world. Is Christ the same substance of the Father, represented by the Greek homoousia? Or is Christ a different substance of the Father, represented by an addition of one vowel, homoousia? The difference between truth and heresy. You may say, okay, what difference does it make? Are we not straining at gnats here? Well, even Jesus himself was concerned about the details of the law as he states clearly not one jot or tittle of the law will fail. And he's talking there about these very small marks related to the Hebrew consonants that separate one Hebrew consonant from another. Sometimes it's just this really small mark. Jesus says not even those will fail as he will fulfill them without precision. We are left in a fog of ambiguity that leads to confusion. The truth of God brings clarity and clears away the fog. 
one word in this debate would make all the difference in the world. The word innocent connected to the word suffering. Innocent suffering, that describes Job's situation, but the friends have no category for innocent suffering. And so they're not able to understand Job's situation. And they continue to operate with a narrow view of justice, and they get themselves in a pickle, because eventually, if you read through these speeches, they're going to begin to offer Sins that they believe Job should probably consider to repent of. Okay, Job, you won't come up with any sins. Let's give you some suggestions. <laughs> Bad counsel sounds like the truth in its appeal to a source of authority. Bad counsel sounds like the truth in its general teaching. And then bad counsel sounds like the truth in its application. We see this in verses 11 through 19, where Bildad describes a person who is godless. This person is defined as someone who has forgotten God, and so his hope will perish. That's verse 13. He uses the example of a reed that is in flower, but is growing where there is no water. And of course, as the roots of the reed spread out and it's among stones and there's no real soil and there's no real water, the flower will perish. It looks secure, but it will quickly perish. There's no foundation for the plant. And the godless person may have confidence and trust concerning his life, but it's as secure as a spider's web, verse 14 says. Spider's web's not too secure. There's nothing there to hold him up, nothing to give him security. Again, there's an element of truth in this. In the general application, we understand that many times those who are wicked and godless may prosper for a while, we understand that, yes, eventually they will suffer the consequences of their wickedness. We can navigate that, but put yourself in Job's situation who is suffering so deeply, having lost everything in life except for his wife, having lost his goods, his material blessings his children, and, and then his health, sitting out there at the ash heap. And this looks totally different. You probably know of the incident, tragic, tragic incident, maybe months ago now, forget when it was, when the Syrian government gassed its own citizens with poison gas. And you saw the story, perhaps you saw the story of one gentleman who buried 28 family members, lost all of his children. Imagine speaking to that individual as Bildad speaks to Job. Pious platitudes that don't really get to the heart 
of the issue don't really deal with the suffering of Job or of this particular individual. The death of your children is their fault? And then he applies it at the end of this chapter to Job. Job has continually, not continually, but several times he's asserted his innocence. He's blameless. Blameless does not mean sinless. Blameless means that your walk and your talk uh, match up. You're not a hypocrite, that, uh, that you live your life in the way that you uh, profess to believe. And Job has been determined in chapter 1 and 2 that he is a blameless man. That's the way the book starts. And he is... He has asserted his blamelessness, and now Bildad comes back. Well, Job, yes, if you're really blameless, then God will not reject you. And that's why he tells him to put his hope in his blamelessness, in his purity. It's a narrow view that argues from the fact of suffering back to the cause of sin. And it leads to the horrible counsel that righteousness always leads to blessing and wickedness always leads to suffering. But that's not the way the world works. That's not the way God has is working out his purposes. There is no category for an innocent sufferer, and therefore they offer bad counsel to Job. It's the same struggle that people had when they were confronted with this man hanging on a cross who claimed to be the Son of God. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day had no category for someone who claimed to be the Son of God and is hanging on a cross. Crucifixion meant that you are a criminal. How can you be the Son of God? Now, if they'd have paid attention to the Old Testament a little bit more, there were categories there. But the Old Testament, before Jesus comes, the Old Testament has got these threads running through it, and it's very hard to put that all together until the truth The fullness of revelation comes, and then you see, oh, yeah, now I understand how there can be both a conquering king and a suffering servant. So there were categories, but they didn't have them. They did not know what to do with Jesus. The chief priests in Matthew 27, 43 state clearly, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. They could not, they had no way to affirm that Jesus was the Son of God as he hung there on the cross. And so their response was to reject him. Their response was to smear him. Their response was to label him. Because he did not fit into their view of the world. We face a similar challenge today as Christians. We don't fit into the mold 
of the thinking of the world. The truth that we believe is opposed many, many, many times to the way the culture and the world thinks. And we find ourselves like Job, completely misunderstood because people don't have categories today to understand us. People today do not understand how I can disagree with what they believe about God. How I can disagree with what they believe about sexuality or gender. How I can disagree about their lifestyle. But that doesn't mean that I hate them. But in our culture today, disagreement means that you must be evil, wicked, and hateful. In a recent Christianity Today article, an author describes a new secular standard that's being used to judge everything. And that secular standard is the standard of being a decent person. And if you're a decent person, you have universal benevolence and moral burden for all people Sort of this open tolerance of everything and everyone. And but the article makes the point without the gospel. The energy which drives becoming a decent human being is shame. What that means is if you don't, if you don't match up to this new standard of what it means to be a decent person, you are shamed. Shamed into becoming what they considered to be a decent person. Shamed by being rejected. Shamed by being called evil. Shamed by having these labels attached to you. Because you don't believe the standard of the culture. It's a falsehood. Part of the gospel is that we are not decent people. But to say that today puts you in a category of someone who is hateful. We are not decent people. We need to recognize that because we need the good news of the gospel of Christ who did not die for decent people but died for sinners. It's a falsehood. It leaves people in their sin and slavery and blindness and falsehood. They need the truth of Christ to set them free. And we need to try as best we can to present the gospel. The challenge coming out of this sermon is are you as a Christian willing to join Job? But even more so, are you willing to join Jesus? And countless Christians throughout the ages who've been rejected because they did not meet the standard of the day. Are you that committed to the truth? Are you that committed to Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word as it gives us a place to stand 
and we realize that the truth of your word is not held very high in today's the eyes of the world of today. And Father, we pray that you would give us opportunities to preach the gospel, that we would, with people, even seek to earn the right, so to speak, truth into their lives, that we would look for opportunities to befriend people, to show compassion, that you would give us opportunities to present Christ. He is the only solution, the way, the truth, and the life. And we understand that no one can come into your holy presence apart from Jesus Christ. We thank you that he did not disdain the rejection of the world that he left his glory in heaven, became incarnate as a human being, lived in this world of sin, although he himself was without sin, was tempted as we are, cried out to you from the cross. Help us to follow the steps of our Savior. Give us wisdom. Give us courage. For the honor of Christ. It's in his name that we do pray. Amen.